You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. What creates higher trust for you and the people around you? Your guide on the side. And a lot of us end up spending our entire life searching for what we expect instead of what has actually been given to us. Dr. Matt Townsend. So do you feel bored? And is it is it bored that is your problem or the fear that you're bored? And so when we're afraid that we are bored or boring... Um, either bored because we're not doing anything interesting or that we are boring, which means others might not see us as interesting. What do you do with that feeling? I guess one of the big keys, and there's a great quote by Nathaniel Brandon about this, the first step toward change is awareness. So we probably ought to be more aware of what we're feeling, whether we're bored or are we afraid of boring, being boring? Do we have some compelling, driven unexplored assumption in our head that says you shouldn't be boring or you're going to amount to nothing. And then once we can become aware of that, the second step is to accept it. You're bored. You've got you've got this state of, uh, you know, you, you really literally, as she put it, are irritably restless now. And that might make it so you don't love your job. You're struggling with your family. You wonder why you married the person you married. Maybe some of these things aren't telling you to just ditch all of these people or get rid of the job. Maybe boredom is simply saying it's time to make some adjustments that either make the game more exciting and interesting, or maybe you need to take some things in a different direction or just get better at what you have been avoiding. Powerful insights about each of us as human beings. We can either become aware and or not, and we can either accept it or not. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. What I'm worried about when it comes to all this fake news is I think we're just getting lazy. We, we, are, we are just lazy consumers. And if, if we like the information to come to us, and with, with all this great technology, we don't even need to – we really don't need to do anything. It will be hand-delivered to our nice little device, and it'll even come up in a pop-up window to tell me wonderful, important, breaking news. Um, And then all of a sudden, we may not even check our sources. So you got to be careful. And one of the big pieces of advice I have is I think there's a – it's a scary moment the minute you make it um, about a financial enterprise and gain, so the minute we're now going for money, then truth might be impacted. Or the minute it's there's an entertainment value to the delivery of the truth. So we we not only have to read and study, but if if it's not entertaining, you don't want that information. Isn't it? Isn't it interesting that? Uh, Republicans have such great success on talk radio because I guess they can make it more entertaining and they can gather audiences. Um, but then there's not a lot of really conservative television talk show hosts at night. All of the talk show hosts at night tend to be more liberal. So liberals can make the television funnier so they can skew the information. Republicans can skew the information uh, on the radio because somehow they have a corner on that market. But where does the truth lie? And it's got to be somewhere in between, right? And and it can be in both sides. So become a connoisseur. Look through it and find your favorites and make sure it's diverse. And question, question. You should be – you should almost have an inherent doubt about everything you read. 
find the sourcing, figure out where it's coming from. And just because it, it aligns with what you believe in doesn't mean it's true. So we also have to figure a way to intentionally start questioning, questioning some of our own belief systems. It's a, lot to, it's a lot to do. And it's a lot to ask from people that may not even care in the first place. You know, as long as the Kardashians are good, life's good. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. You know, again, we've we've uh, had a couple uh, discussions over this last few days about poverty. And remember, yesterday we talked about um, how our brains, when you are poor, it creates stress. And stress then has you generally working out of a part of your brain called the amygdala, the fight or flight part of your brain, which isn't necessarily your highest reasoning. It's not your best executive kind of functioning brain. It's just survival brain. And when we're in the survival brain, we don't always make the best decisions. We don't always think big picture. We don't always solve the problems and and they tend to stick around. So the same is true when we think about the war on poverty. Maybe what we're doing is we're approaching it from our more reactive tendencies, our more reactive feelings. One of the things I love about um, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the, the LDS Church that, um, you know, is the, the sponsor really in the end of this show because of it, Brigham Young University, is they're really amazing as a church at getting people off of welfare and a job and getting them back into the world. And they have they, – they have your church leader will come, your religious leader will come and meet with you, assess and find out why you are struggling in poverty. The church will even help to some degree to get you back on your feet. We have jobs programs. We have um, – we, we just have a lot of ways to help people back on their feet. But the idea is at some point you want to be self-reliant. And I believe in every single human being in every heart – is a desire, a drive to be self-reliant, to be able to make it on their own. But then if we're stuck in poverty and we're not making the best decisions and we're caught up in that reactive fight-or-flight brain, we, we start spinning and we need somebody, something that can help maybe hold on to us and stop us from spinning, get us in a place where we can start succeeding. And once we start getting traction, then we can start making better decisions, making better turns. It's like when your wheels are stuck in the snow and you're spinning, until you get the traction, more acceleration doesn't get you out necessarily. It just gets you deeper in the hole. So we need to get the people that are struggling in poverty some traction, and we need to get them some guidance, some a guide literally on their side that can get them into a job and and start giving them – and we always think, let's train them first. Let's give them the skills. Okay. But again, skills without a job isn't going to help you. If I have all the skills in the world and I'm, I'm in North Dakota and there's not a job for me in North Dakota, then my skills won't help me. If I have daycare and I'm in Oklahoma but I don't have a job, the daycare is not going to help me. Well, yeah, but that will help you go get a job. Well, if there's jobs. We've got to work on on some of the other solutions. And so think about you. How are you helping it? How are you handling it? Are you are you involved in helping the people around you to get uh, get a leg up and to get some strength? Are you talking to your politicians about it? Do you have some of the 
just typical mindsets or biases that we might have that those that are on the welfare rolls, they just don't, they're just lazy. If you believe that, you don't know enough people on welfare. Well, they're just all drug addicted. Not true. Not true. You got to get to know these people. You got to walk a little bit in their shoes and change your way of thinking. Because when we change our way of thinking, then we wouldn't vote for a politician that's going to just keep enabling people to stay poor, that's going to keep pushing ideas and policies that don't solve or or end um, some of these these problems. We've been at it for 60 years and $22 trillion, and it's still beating us down. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. There are a few tricks uh, to emotional management that I think can help you take control of this fight or flight part of your brain. The fight or flight part of your brain, remember, is it's there to protect you. But as we learned, the protection is just as much for your physiology, your body, as it is for your psychology or your identity. So our body, our, our fight or flight instincts will kick in just as strong and just as aggressively for the need to protect, you know, don't make fun of my high school as it will for, um, you know, I'm going to kill you. It's, they're just their threats. And it's, it's not like the body can always distinguish, especially because the amygdala is so wired to fight or flight instantly. So some rules that we teach in my program, um, again, and, and uh, Dr. Kaplan hit it perfectly, one of them is just to start noticing your thinking. The more aware you are and the more aware we all become of our own thinking and how we react to certain events, how we see certain things, the more abilities we have to handle these events. Again, it doesn't eliminate the fact that I have issues, but as soon as I know that, boy, I'm really sensitive to certain things. For example, I know a bigger trigger for me is, um, is more when my kids, like, question my authority. And when they question my authority, that's more likely to set me off than um, – or my, ex- my experience than almost anything else they can do. They can call me a name. They can say whatever they want. But when, you know, when I say something like, you know what, okay, time for bed. You guys got to go to bed. And they're like, well, mom said we didn't have to. Boy, what has your mom got to do with this? And off we go. So what triggers you? We want to start to identify what the triggers are. And, and generally, I, I've found that we tend to be triggered by any time we question if we're capable if you're questioning my capability, if you're questioning if I'm loved, if I, if I feel what you're doing is attacking me in a way that I feel unlovable or when I feel unsafe, those tend to be the three biggest triggers I found. Um, lack of safety, lack of capability, like I'm just not cutting it anymore, or lack of lovability. So think about it. What triggers you to, you know, to go off? What, what's the thing that most pushes you to just walk out of a discussion with your wife? Is it that every time she brings something up, do you feel like she's questioning if you're capable, if you're good enough to do this kind of stuff? Do you question if you're loved? Or do you question, um, you know, if you're going to be safe physically, socially, emotionally, spiritually, financially? So once you start to become more aware, then you can start to understand how your triggers go off and what works for you. I mean, I found a lot of times... Just breathing, taking a deep breath, 
helps a lot to be able to manage my reactions. Um, another thing I found is a, a great tool is anything you can do to get into your what I call your higher brain. Um, one fast way to do that, by the way, is math. If if you would take a million and count down from one million by seventeens, I'm going to bet you won't fight about whatever your wife is bringing up. <laughs> Right. And one reason is because if you have to go into your high brain and start making sense of something that's more complicated, then all of a sudden you don't have time to just get into your low brain and fight or flight. One of the ways I do this, and there's a really interesting um, parallel to it in the court system. If you notice in courts, they have a lot of rules and a lot of uh, ways that you approach the bench, the ways that you, you're you allowed to say what you want to say in the courtroom. They have so much structure and so many rules to, to uh, obey and so much just protocol for how you handle the courtroom that I think the protocol itself keeps the people from fighting or flighting and reacting to each other. I mean, think about it. You have people in a court system that truly do not like each other. They hate each other, but there's so much process that that is demanding their brain power. Otherwise, they lose the case, right? They'll get the judge mad at them, so they follow the protocol. And when you follow the protocol, the process is nice and slow and methodical, and the protocol keeps you from reacting, overly reacting to each other in the courtroom. I found the same is true in our in our relationship. So we teach our couples when we're teaching them how to have a have to have a serious conversation that might normally set us off that there's some protocols we're going to follow. We're going to learn to recognize each other emotion each other's emotions. I call this getting real. Recognize the emotion, explore the story behind it. Behind every emotion there's a story. And if I can let the person that's I'm, that we're, I'm struggling with, that I'm arguing with, share their story without me jumping in and without me reacting to their emotion, and I explore their story, I'll be able to hear where they're really starving. Deep down in the story, you'll hear where they're really being affected. You'll hear if they have a lovable issue, if they have a capable issue, if they have a safety issue. I call that stuff the starve stuff. So we recognize their emotion. You seem upset. We explore the story. Tell me what's going on. And I attend to what they're saying. I really listen to where they're hurting. And then before I do all of those three things before I try to ever lift the conversation. And to lift the conversation, I try to do what I call – it's a very simple rule that I call the 80-20 rule. I believe in every discussion you have with another human being, 80% of what they're saying you agree with. I agree that the world is complicated today. I agree that, uh, you know, we didn't take care of America like we should have. I admit that uh, we, you know, I've been part of the problem. I accept. I, I affirm. And you just you go with them wherever they are, where you can go with them. And then you share your side. And I have a different side. And then you can tell your side. And I don't think that we should, you know, make everybody feel unsafe by saying certain things politically. Does that make sense? So we recognize emotion, we explore, we attend, and we lift conversations. They're skills, and they're skills you can learn. I'm teaching them every day, and you know what? You learn You learn to do it. This stuff works. Um, it, it's not a silver bullet, but it's a skill, and you can learn to do it, and the more you do it, the easier it gets, I think, for all of us. So great learnings, I think. Uh, that's why we do the show, to give you the tools, the information you need 
to live healthier, happier lives. We'll take a break. Stick with us. When we come back, we'll continue the journey of emotions. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Fishing is a sport of leisure, right? You know, you might go out early in the morning alone and wait hours until you have a bite. And in those hours, many people just sit in silent reflection, but few people spend their time pondering about particle cosmology. But Dr. Marcelo Gleiser does that and even more. I think, uh, uh, can you imagine knowing as much as, you, I guess, one human can know about the world of theoretical physics? Then you take that brain and you go stand in a river fly fishing. What do you find there? That's what uh, we wanted to ask our next guest. Uh, Dr. Marcelo Gleiser joins us. He's the author of the book, The Simple Beauty of the Unexpected, A Natural Philosopher's Quest for Trout and the Meaning of Everything. And he's here today to, to talk about some of his, uh, his great insights and learning. Dr. Gleiser, thank you so much for being with us today. My pleasure, my what, pleasure. What a wonderful, um, I think, undertaking you, you've made here. You you are a world-renowned theoretical physicist. Hundreds of articles and um, and uh, and just and 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 skilled in what you do. What does a physicist think about when you're standing in a river? <laughs> well, you know, there are different ways of thinking about that. The best. The best way to think about that is that I go to the river not to think about theoretical physics. Right. You know, um, it was it was really an attempt to connect with nature in a less theoretical way. Um, so going to the river for me really represents an engagement of us humans with nature in a much more direct way than through equations and formulas and mm-hmm. data. Is it is it a form of meditation for you? Is it does it does it kind of reach a level of spiritual absolutely so you know it's it's it may shock some people to think that way but uh really uh the the big parallel here between the fishing and the research in science is that in, believe it or not both of them deal with the unknown right so mm-hmm. from a fisherman especially in fly fishing which is a pretty hard thing to learn you know but what you're really trying to do is trying to go into the river and figure out what the fish are doing without actually being in their world. So you're dealing with this unknown world of the fish and what they eat and are they even there, what sort of currents are there, etc. And the way you probe that unknown world of the fish is through an instrument, through tools, which are in this case just the line, you know, and the, and the, and the fly, the hook. And in science, you're sort of doing something similar because you don't see everything there is to see of the world with our eyes and our ears. We, we're surrounded by this invisible reality out there. And the way we try to make sense of that is, again, using tools. In the case of the scientists, you're talking about microscopes and telescopes. And these are things that amplify our vision of reality. And so, in a sense, both of them are connecting us with something grander than we are in the case of the fishing, you know, nature and in the case of science, also nature, but from a more descriptive 
perspective. And you do and this so, everywhere, right? Because you, you're going to conferences all over yeah. the world. So you just take your you take your rod, you take your reel, and you get out anywhere you can. Yeah. So that that has been uh, my quest, you know, in the last for the last few years, where I would, uh, as long as they, I mean, if you go to Washington D.C., your dad, right? But <laughs> but if you're going to like fun places where there are rivers with trout and salmon, then I would take the opportunity to do that and always trying to get a local mentor as well. Because one of the things about this whole fishing process, and again, there is a parallel here with science, is that you need a mentor to learn how to fly fish properly, you know. And and it's really about my encounters with these fellows from northern England, from Tuscany, from Iceland, from southern Brazil. Mm. And, you know, myself putting putting me in a position of the apprentice again, you know, because, you know, you get to middle age and you sort of settle in a profession and I'm doing okay as a scientist. And, and suddenly here I am trying something new that I didn't know and, and, and having the humility to actually learning, you know, from someone that knows this much better than I do. Mm. In fact, you, you make it a point that in your book about how this is really an act, a process of humility. It is. And so is science. You know, even though some people, and with some reason, actually think that scientists tend to be somewhat arrogant, I actually make a point in the book of, of saying something like, a scientist who is arrogant is like a peacock with some of the feathers in the tail missing and without a mirror to look mm. at himself. Mm. You know, because... The truth is that, yes, we have learned a lot about nature in the last 400 years, but there's so much that we do not know, and that nature is so much smarter than we are, that we're always playing a catch-up game. Hmm. How, how powerful for you to be—I mean, because I mean, it just seems like you're taking two extreme lives, the extreme astrophysicist, scientist, and then— the just the na- the nature loving fly fisherman, and it seems like it must take your brain on a really unique dance. It does, you know. I mean, I kind of fool around a little bit in the book with the physics of fly fishing, you know. So I talk about how you know when you're casting, you're really transferring the potential energy of the bent rod into the kinetic energy of the mm-hmm. flying fly, you know, all that kind of stuff. But that's really not what the book is about. And the book is definitely not a fishing manual. If anything, it's really more a book about finding time in your life to kind of reinvent yourself, you know. So it's, yes, there is the science and the cosmology and the quantum physics, but it's really a book about um, how do we, in this very rushed life of ours, you know, kind of take a step back and re- discover who we are through an activity that forces us to kind of be outside time in a sense. And fishing does that, you know, and, and, and research of course does that, but I was trying to get out of my, you know, competitive academic life, you know, of publishing and getting grants and stuff. And, and that did it for me, you know, although as you probably know, there is a big twist as we get to the end of the book about this whole thing of fishing and fly fishing. Mm. In fact, talk to us about talk to us about the book itself. I mean, you cuz you're a busy person anyway, how how does one find time to write a book like this? <laughs> well, yeah, time management, right? So 
so um, what I tend to do is because, you know, I am teaching, I am doing research, I have PhD students here at Dartmouth, and, um, and I have to write grants to pay them and to pay some of my salaries. So, so what you do is you get smart about how focused you are when you're doing something. So, for example, I always turn off email and Internet when I'm either calculating my, on my research or when I'm writing. And I tend to allocate two days a week to just my writing. So, you know, I don't just write books. I also have a blog at NPR. Mm-hmm that has been going on for quite a while now, and it's a very successful uh, science and culture blog. And, and to be honest, this sort of complementarity of the research and the writing and the public intellectual kind of approaches, they kind of enrich my life a lot because by writing, you are connecting with the public in very different ways that you are with your colleagues in, in, in the sciences. You know, and, and what you see is there's a huge appetite for for this kind of information, you know, for what is the Big Bang and black holes yeah. and what is quantum physics and people really want to know, you know, and and so I feel like you shouldn't just be a teacher inside a classroom, you know, you should be a teacher in a broader sense of the world and exchange information with all these people. And by the way, I end up learning a lot in the process, which is very enriching. Which which is a larger chasm to cross, uh, you know, the vastness of space or a protective human being that's unwilling to open up and disclose? <laughs> Which, what are you learning? What's more complicated, human well, mind and relationships yeah. or space? I think definitely the former. You know, mm. there's no question that uh, people uh, are much more complex than than the universe. You know, I think as you go up in the sciences, you know, from physics to chemistry to biology to psychology, the complexity only grows, you know, mm. and, our, and our knowledge only decreases, you know, because we can't, at least knowledge in a quantifiable sense, you know, we can't really make very useful models of, of the mind yet, and yeah. certainly not about our subjective feelings and, and things like that. So, so absolutely, there is a, there is a barrier there, and. I always say that, you know, the best teacher in the world could not teach someone who is not willing to learn. And and I think that's true in every sphere of life, you know, from the classroom to the family to politics, given that the week that we are at right yeah. now. And, and, and one of the things that I mention a lot in the book, and the book really turns into a sort of ecological manifesto of our relationship with the planet and ourselves and and the way i do that is by using the latest science that we have specifically in astronomy and in this new field called astrobiology which is the study of life in the universe Mm. to basically you know basically ets right i mean extraterrestrial life and extraterrestrial intelligence now we actually get grants to think about this stuff which is very exciting um and as you probably know, we now have found all these other planets going around other stars, right? Mm. And, and so they're called exoplanets. So we know that more than 80% of the stars in our galaxy, so the sun is one star, right? Right. In our galaxy with our eight planets, now that Pluto has been, you know, demoted. But then you have... Um, 
200 billion other stars in the Milky Way, our galaxy alone. And so you think about that and you think, wow, and 80% of those roughly have planets and a bunch of them. And planets have moons, right? right? Some of them have lots of moons, like Jupiter has more than 64. So you're talking trillions, you know, a one with like 12 zeros, worlds out there. And each one is different, just like Venus and Earth and Mars are so different from one another. So, so people start to think about that and they say, damn, you know, the more we learn about the, the scientists are telling us, the more we learn about the universe, the less important, the less relevant Earth and then us become. Right? Mm. It's sort of like the scientific angst. Yeah. Of, and so... And I have, with these public encounters and writings, I, I feel like people want an answer, you know. So what do you guys have to say about that? And, and in this book and in my previous books, couple of books, I have kind of constructed this argument where, which turns this whole thing upside down. And basically what we know is that, yes, there are tons of worlds out there, and Earth is only one of them. But when you start to look at the properties of this planet, you know, and there are quite a few of them that I'm sure we can go into details in your show, but the Earth, the global, um, the global uh, properties that we have, the big moon, the magnetic field, the kind of atmosphere, the distance from the sun, etc., conspire to make this into a very specific hmm. planet, with, which is basically an oasis for life. Right? And why it needs to be protected. And why it needs to be protected at all costs, mm. exactly. So suddenly, you know, from being nothing and lost in the vastness of the universe, we sort of become a very central player in this whole game. Because the truth is, yes, there could be life in other worlds out there. There are lots of them. Most probably that kind of life is going to be very simple, like bacteria, like unicellular creatures, you know, not complex, smart aliens mm -hmm. like we see in the movies, which makes us very, very rare and very, very important indeed, you know. Oh, that's and that's where we become important again, by having this new perspective in the co of who we are in the cosmos, you know, basically creatures made of stardust, they're able to think about these questions and have self-awareness, mm. you know, and that, that is quite something. That is, and and then and then share it and communicate it and be a part of uh, connecting with others on it. Let's take a break. We're speaking with Dr. Marcelo uh, Gleiser, who is walking us through his new book, The Simple Beauty of the Unexpected, A Natural Philosopher's Quest for Trout and the Meaning of Everything. Man, astrophysics at a human level, one that we can... Uh, it's still about humans. It's still about... This incredible blessing of Earth and also of being able to connect with one another. We'll continue the discussion. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you see the good in the world. Friends to the Matt Townsend Show. On the phone with us is Dr. Marcelo Gleiser. He is the author of uh, many, many books and countless articles. He truly is a world-famous theoretical physicist and author of the book The Simple Beauty of the Unexpected, A Natural Philosopher's Quest for Trout and the Meaning of Life. 
the simple beauty of the unexpected is a scientist's tribute to nature, an affirmation of humanity's deep connection with and debt to Earth. Uh, Dr. Gleiser, again, thank you for being with us. My pleasure, my pleasure. And I think you described the book well. <laughs> thank you. I, I really, I think it's profound. Because I love people that, that know a lot about their specialty and then also that can enlighten us about how special this earth is. This is, we do take it for granted, don't we? I mean, we live in this crazy ball and ecosystem that is really one in a trillion. I mean, what are the odds of this happening to this degree the way it is on the earth? Exactly. Well, you know, if I only knew the answer yeah. to that question, that would be awesome. But we don't know how uh, the odds for other Earth-like planets or something similar to it, but we do know that the odds are not very large, mm. right? So, so that, to me, is, is really what matters, coupled to something else that really matters, which is the fact that as a species, you know, we humans are really unique. You know, I can tell you with certainty that there are no other humans in the universe. We're the only ones, you know. There may be other intelligent species way out there, and they may have this sort of left-right symmetry that we have, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, if you look at ourselves, at least approximate, but they're not going to be like us. So that already makes us unique. And then, coupled to that, is the fact that to travel to other stars where there will be other planets that may or may not have life is really very hard. So just to give you a number, you know, our neighbor, neighboring stellar system is Alpha Centauri and a couple of other stars around there. And that's about four and a half light years away from us. That mm. just means that if you travel at the speed of light, 186,000 miles per second, you know, a ridiculous <laughs> super speed, we would take four and a half years to get there. Now, if you use our fastest rocket ship right now to try to get there, it would take us 100,000 years, <laughs> roughly. Yeah. So we're really alone, you know, and I think that is something that we have to really think very seriously about. You know, DTs are not here. They haven't been. If they have been, they, they, they left. <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and, and so we're here. We have some very serious issues to deal with in the next few decades, and we have to take responsibility for the planet that we have and for our respect for life, human and any other kind. And that's really where the book goes mm. in the end. It's really, I mean, it's about... It's about connecting. It's about, I guess, valuing the earth and valuing the people and kind of the specialness of, of all of us on this earth. And then, like you said, how little we actually know about the human side of all of this. It's, yeah, it's kind it's, of scary when you, when you form it the way you just formed it. We are so alone and we are very much so ignorant as to how it all works. We, we are. And, and furthermore, you know, people that say, well, we're soon going to be colonizing other planets. And so who cares? Kind of, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, Stephen Hawking and other people have made. And that's just, in my opinion, really nonsense, because um, to talk about colonizing other, we can't even go to the moon again <laughs> with humans. You know, it's hard for us to do that. Going to Mars is going to be a few decades before we do that. It's not like we can't do that. We can. It's just a technological barrier. It's not like 
there is a law of nature that forbids us from doing it. But it's a hard technological barrier. And so that means that for us to move out into other places thinking that we can do whatever we want here and then we'll have a second chance elsewhere mm. is really pushing the envelope to hundreds of years ahead of time. And that is just not realistic. No. Well, and it's also, it's, I mean, master yourself first, right? I mean, master your home, clean it up, get your own house in order before you go mess up the universe. Exactly. And and boy, are we messing it up good. You know I mean? So, so that is, there's a whole discussion we could or not have about, you know, what's going on with, with global warming and how right. we relate to that. Um, and, and one thing that I do like to talk about when I mention these things is that people tend to have a very passive approach to this whole thing saying, well, you know, I, I won't make a difference. You know, I mean, it's really the big corporations and the armed forces that really are the big polluters. And what could I do by myself? And I think that sort of attitude is really not very good for the planet because two reasons. First, individuals do make a difference. You know, you alone can control how much water you use, how much energy you use, you know, this just like brushing your teeth with the water running kind of thing, you know, yeah. you don't need to do that. So, so those little things multiplied by billions of people will make a difference. You know, we need awareness of that. And, and so that's the one thing. The other thing is that um, as we get together as consumers, you know, we do have the power to influence corporations, you know. So if we know that Corporation X doesn't do well with the environment or is exploiting labor in, 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 in the wrong way, you can stop buying products from X. And if lots of people stop buying products from X, then X will have to change. And, and people now talk in business schools, people talk about corporate ethics, you know, where mm-hmm. – some companies, and, uh, and it's a growing number, are waking up to the fact that people are getting smarter about these things. And if they don't shape up, they're going to lose customers, which is the last thing they want. So we do have power as individuals and as consumers to make a difference. And with each other, too, right? I mean, like you bring up how you uh, – some of the most engaging things you do is would be talking to other guides as you're, um, as you're uh, fishing – yeah. What's that like? I mean, a human connection from you to a person from a completely different country, you know nothing about their river, you know nothing, but what are those connections like? So that's a good question. And and so I always like to talk about us being very tribal. You know, we humans are tribal by by evolution. You know, we, we survived in tribes and a tribe is a good thing in the sense that it protects us from common evil and it helps us find food and and so there is a sheltering and also it has a communal value of being places where we we share values with people and so we feel justified and we feel empowered by the tribe right but on the other hand when you take that to an extreme the tribe can also be a serious problem because if you take it to an extreme you start judging people that do not belong Mm. to your tribe and you start saying the other you know and the other the ones that don't belong to my tribe are not worthy and we know from bad bad 70s 
sad examples across the world that if you take that to a real radical extremist uh, ideology, you can really hurt and kill people with this tribal allegiance. Mm. So what is the hardest thing to do? You mentioned, you know, talking to different people is not just tolerating difference, but is actually engaging and being curious about people that don't think like you do. And that is just the hardest thing for us to do. Absolutely. You look at someone that you completely disagree with, you know, say pro-choice versus pro-life, and to actually sit down and have a meaningful conversation where you're not just like throwing punches at one another is, is very difficult. But honestly, we are, you know, far away from the caves. You know, it's been like 200,000 years since we kind of showed up in this planet. And, and, and agrarian civilization is at least 10,000 years old. And we're still sort of behaving that way, mm, right? Yeah. And, and so the biggest challenge, I think, for us as we move ahead, uh, and this is a very good week to talk about this, is to actually learn to see the other not immediately as an enemy, but as a possible partner, even if opinions are different. And mm. I think that is a very difficult thing to do. It takes a lot of openness and humility, you know, and, and, and I don't see how else we're going to move forward if we don't kind of realize that this is the time to begin to think this way. I uh, know. I totally agree. And um, really, I think, I think you add great insight into that. Again, we, we're members of tribes on this earth, but then again, this earth is such a unique environment that we don't even pay attention to. And sometimes we pay more attention to our Republican or Democratic affiliations than we do the fact that you're a member of one of the most incredible planets ever. And that is our joint tribe. So you can talk about us as a species, you know, we humans, depending completely on this planet. I mean, if you start to think about this, if things go crazy, you know, earthquakes, volcanoes, tidal waves, you name it, then we very quickly lose control. You know, I mean... Nature is much stronger than we are. So the biggest tribe here is us as a species coexisting in this planet. And and that should stand above and beyond any other subdivision of our tribes. But people are still not quite waking up to that yet. But I'm optimistic, and yeah. I think they will eventually, you know. Yeah. Dr. Marcelo Gleiser, thank you so much for your great work. Uh, totally inspiring to me and I think to so many others. The book, my friends, is called, again, The uh, Simple Beauty of the Unexpected, A Natural Philosopher's Quest for Trout and the Meaning of Life. And what great advice uh, that we are all members of uh, planet Earth tribe. There's so much bigger things out there that, uh, that keep us together. We'll take a break. Come back. When we do, we'll teach you how to save time with Leanna Tan. Stick with us, folks. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to The Matt Townsend Show. As you know, we like to... uh, to give you added insight on different topics. Today, Leanna Tan, one of our producers, will be talking about how to save time. This morning, I was just doing my daily and weekly planning and trying to navigate my way through all the mess of ink and scribbles in my planner and was reminded of how packed my schedule can get. But then I figured, you know, I'm probably not the only one experiencing this. 
Yes, many of us are just busy all the time, but there are certain times of the years that are way busier than others, and I think we're approaching one of those times of the year. Now for college students, the assignments are really picking up, the weather is causing traffic to pile up, and the holiday season is just a bustling time of the year in itself. But don't worry, I'm here to help out. I'm no Hermione Granger and I can't turn time, but I do have something that's just as good. Today, I will share with you five secrets I have for saving time. Always have a spare can opener. Stick one in your desk drawer or at work or in your car or something. This way, if you're ever running late to work or school and don't have time to pack a lunch or buy one, you can just grab a can of tuna or maybe a can of soup or something and have it for lunch. Plus, you don't have to worry about it spilling all over the place while you're in a rush. Make use of your walking time. I feel the earth move under my notice it, but walking from the top of the building to the bottom or crossing campus or even crossing the parking lot to your car can take significant time out of your day. So instead of just being lost in thought or scrolling through Pinterest, take that time to cross off the little things on your to-do list, like calling your bank or mechanic. Hi, this is Earl with the mechanic. I'm going to need your car for three more days. It turns out your steering wheel is bent, your drive shaft is bent, your tie rods are bent, your rims are bent. Your tires are not bent, but they are bald. It's going to run about $985. Shop online. Yeah. I used to hate the idea of online shopping. Maybe my hate developed after my first time trying to buy textbooks online, and what I got instead was a massive cloth flag of the state of Utah. To this day, I still have no idea why. That's why I'm since succumbed to the Amazon monopoly and realized that A, I get a lot more variety for what I shop for and all I have to do is type in the search bar to find what I'm looking for instead of hunting down a sales clerk. B, I don't even have to leave my house and it just comes right to me, which takes out all the time you have to spend getting in your car, finding the right store, and waiting in long lines. And C, it's a great weight loss incentive considering 80% of the stuff that comes in the mail is actually two sizes too small. Actually have a destination for your morning run. This is how you kill two birds with one stone. Yeah, you feel way too guilty eliminating your daily workout from your schedule when things get packed. But you still have to get groceries or drop off that thing at your friend's house that you borrowed a month ago. So, instead of blocking out time for both things, just take your morning run to the grocery store or to your friend's house. This might be more motivating because you have to make sure you're back on time, and you know, wherever you run to, it will take just as long to run back. So, this tactic is a sure way to turn joggers into sprinters overnight. Five! Figure out, hey Siri. Siri, read my new messages. What do you think I am? An iPhone. Request canceled. Yep. Still trying to figure out all the new features on my iPhone, but this one is pretty cool because she's like my own little robot and does whatever I tell her. That means I can multitask while I'm walking or at a stoplight because I can text or search for stuff hands-free. Only, I really think they need to develop a hearing aid app for my Siri. If you just said something, I didn't hear what it was. But Siri is not the only technology today that's at our fingertips. Think of all the technology that has been invented to help us save time vacuum cleaners, washing machines, computers, cell phones, but you have to make sure that you're using it to save time rather than pass time, right? 
With these five helpful tips, you'll be saving lots of significant pockets of time throughout your day. But remember to ask yourself, now that you're saving all this time, what are you actually doing with it? Well, happy scheduling! I'm Leanna Tan, and that's my little tangent. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Uh, it's, it's these interruptions that are there to teach you the lessons we need to live. Your guide on the side. What creates higher trust for you and the people around you? This is The Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. It's so easy to just think, yeah, that's just bad. It's just bad. No, it's science. It's advancement. It's progress. Well, yeah, but they're just destroying the earth. I'd love to get somebody that just is against fracking to to sit down with a guy like Dr. Morris and explain why. Well, there's earthquakes. Okay, do, why are the earthquakes happening? Because you're pumping water into the ground. Okay, explain it. So we have this tendency to have an opinion without a lot of information. And to have an opinion is great, I guess, but to have no information, you know, it's kind of a pretty empty opinion. So one of the things we might want to do is formulate your opinion with information and with education and not just information and education that comes from the one side that you love, the pro-oil or the anti-oil people, the environmentalists, but just learn. Did you know that you can drill horizontally? And did you know you can drill horizontally for a mile and a half? Do you remember when those guys were caught in the Chilean mine? They were drilling, you know, diagonally. That is pretty cool. You can drill at any angle. That's great. Someday that'll pay off when you're stuck in a mine, right? Anyway, let's just get informed. That's one of the big reasons we want to do the show is just give you more information. You can always, you know, hate fracking. Or you can also just understand that that fracking wasn't just destroying Mother Earth. It was also employing a lot of people. And it was finally creating security for some some families that didn't have it. Well, yeah, but it was also making a bunch of Oil companies rich. Sure. Okay. Sure. And can we do it better? Absolutely. But it's there's there's this this give and take as we just learned between the costs and and you know the benefit. And sometimes it costs money to have oil. And the mere fact that in the United States we're sitting on so much oil shell, oil shell that for years we have never been able to access the oil in the shell. Yet we're sitting on so much of it, and yet we're so dependent on fuel historically from other places, even to the point that wars were maybe started. You know, I guess a little fracking and learning about it, it's helpful. It's probably – we were probably fairly blessed to all have landed on this country with so much oil and shell. Doesn't mean we need to exploit the earth, and it doesn't mean we need to hate the companies that are providing it for us. Make sense? It just seems like a more moderate view. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. You know, that free range parenting, it's such an interesting thing because we can all think of an example where, oh, yeah, but so and so did this and she was hurt or 
she was abused or she had this. We, we have these fearful examples. And yet um, we also could empower our kids to be able to do more themselves, think more on their own. Uh, yesterday, for example, Mother's Day, we allowed, I guess, our 10-year-old to cut tomatoes, which doesn't seem like a big deal. But he's missing three fingers. So we thought we really ought to – no, but we're afraid he might cut his finger, right? So do you remember back in the day when you got the chance to cut your own tomatoes? Did you lose a finger? <laughs> By the way, if you did get cut, you learned a lesson. And how many times can we teach our children or anybody, our adults, our friends, our neighbors, anybody around us, how to do something and they'll still get hurt? Getting hurt is part of this game. And yet a lot of us feel like if we could just avoid all potential pain, then um, everything will go well. But it's not true. Um, It's not true. And honestly, one of the benefits, I think, of my parents separating or divorcing is I was a latchkey kid. I was home every day, multiple hours in the afternoon by myself from probably nine on. And one thing, just so you know, I loved it. It was my greatest time of day because I was free. I was free to do what I needed to do. I've, I locked myself out of my house. I figured out a way in. I sneaked in. I figured it out. And I could then be, I could sneak in and, uh, or break in, I guess that was what I was doing. I figured out how to, to fix the air conditioner on the top of our house, on our roof. I figured out how to fix a lawnmower. I would mow the lawn on my own from about 12 on. I was out there with a lawnmower. And it every one of those things, no matter how hard it was for me, it'll, I tinkered around and I figured stuff out. I now have these kids that they don't tinker. They don't – we don't ask them to go work on the air conditioner because we don't work the air conditioner. We just call somebody to fix the air conditioner because I don't have a clue how to do that kind of air conditioner. But we don't even give our kids a chance to go out and test stuff and try stuff and make mistakes. Do you? Do you allow mistake making in your children? Well, we can't allow them to kill themselves. Well, no. Let's not do a mistake if we're jumping out of an airplane. I agree. However, mowing the lawn, well, yeah, it could be super. Sure, it could. Absolutely. And what we need to do then is teach them what mistakes we can't make. A kid can make a mistake and hit a sprinkler, they can make that mistake. And if they make that mistake, they also get the benefit of fixing that mistake. And when I get to go fix the sprinkler that they ran over, we're going to go do that together. Do you make sure that the consequences of your children's decisions are also part of their life? I I saw a really great um, just uh, like post on Facebook of a mom carrying everything out of her son's basketball game. And the son was basically not carrying anything. The son wants to bring all of his other gear and shoes and towels and all these things to play a sport, but he ends up not carrying it. He ends up getting the after game treat and then hands the wrappers to his mother. There's consequences along the entire pathway here that we should be 
making sure our children are, are able to experience. And I think a lot of us really want to be the shock absorbers for our children. And we become the shock absorbers between them and the world. And in the end, it just wears down us and it just weakens them. So how are you doing as a parent? Are you allowing your child to take some hits? Have you ever let them fail at something? Have you ever let them not do an assignment and you not run it in at the last minute or come in and save the day and fix that assignment for your child so that they can get an A? Have you ever let them just fail? Because the reality of life is they better get used to failure. And you don't have to you don't have to just abandon these kids, but we need to make sure that they're skilled in the art of failing because it's going to be a major part of existence. And the more we can do something with it, the more we can allow failure and teach the great lesson. I think what it is a lot of times is some of us are so we're so um, kind of negligent in the in the day to day stuff with our kids that we try to make up for it in the big stuff. And maybe what we ought to do is allow some of the big stuff to just happen, like a kid not doing an assignment, and instead get more involved in the day-to-day with our kids. Be there more. Be there. When you when I'm fixing the sprinkler, make sure my boys are there watching me do that. They have no idea. They think a sprinkler fairy changes our sprinklers. They don't know that I'm out there digging a hole for an hour. So... Do you, how are you as a parent? Do you make sure that the kids are learning it and are they learning it day in and day out? Because I think if you, if you did that and you happen to lose a kid at a fair or at a park, I'll bet you your kid might be able to get home just based on your skills that you've entrained, right? So we can worry all we want or we can empower our kids with the tools. Life's still going to happen. Do you know how many people I know that have been abused by somebody in their family, right? So you can worry all you want about the neighborhood being horrible or the park being the bad place or whatever. It's still, it can happen right there in your own home. So worry all you want, but train up your kids. Teach them the principles of life and especially the principle of responsibility for what they do. Let them fail once in a while. And when we do, guess what happens? Apparently learning takes place. It's a, it's a, it's a great thing learning. We all do it, right? And by the way, it's going to go on forever. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. One of the things that just is such a human trait, okay, is we tend to oversimplify, right? We've got to just, you know, keep it clean, keep it simple. But we also tend to, um, we tend to, I guess, uh, objectify. We tend to use things for our advantage, And many would say, well, it's just a B for heaven's sakes. But here's the deal that he told us on the way out. Um, A lot of companies, and we've talked about GMO foods recently, uh, genetically modified foods. Well, they're they're also trying to kind of – some companies are trying to create kind of the super mega B, the B that can take and get rid of – you know, that that doesn't fall to the American foul brood disease or this B that's stronger in this category. And they kind of create this this mega B that genetically – is um, powerful and strong, and then they mass breed it, and then all, or mass yeah breed it, and then they mass take mass hives 
with a lot of bees that pretty much have the exact same genetic makeup, right? And they're doing this so that we can go in and like really maximize our crops and our usage. And then a new bacteria or a new disease comes along. And because there's no genetic differences between this entire, you know, millions of bees, they might fall prey to a disease. And as an entire population, the entire population drops. They all die together because we're mixing and we're messing. We're trying to create the uber super. And it teaches me a really cool lesson just, I guess, about humanity. Maybe we don't need more uber, you know, super mega perfect amazing breeds. Maybe what we need is just the average bee with an average genetic makeup that does their job incredibly well. And this is the same as humans. Maybe we don't need to go be the uber uber perfect person and try to breed an uber perfect company that has everybody exactly doing everything exactly. Maybe what we need to do is just actually let people be people, let bees be bees understand what they need, take care of their needs, don't just use them and ship them and truck them around, work on our pesticides so we understand the impact, start looking at our systems and our lives as a whole instead of just, you know, a bunch of parts. There's one big whole and we're all somehow connected and you can't impact one without impacting another. You can't put the bees in the truck, you know, to go to go pollinate an almond field if almonds aren't what are the best food sources for the bees. You know what I mean? Then if you're going to do that, I guess, go take them out to party at the best, you know, clover field in the world where they really can get nutrients that they need. We're just used to using people. We're used to using things. And again, I get it. They're insects. They're insects. But the minute you lose them, you're going to understand it. And I'm just saying, don't use the same mentality with your family, with your friends. Let's quit using each other. Let's start seeing each other as distinct, unique, important. Man, it you know, what applies with bees also applies with people. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back after this break with more interesting ideas right here on BYU Radio. On October 11th, the U.S. Supreme Court heard arguments over a $400 million verdict against Samsung for infringing several Apple iPhone design patents, like the smartphone's ability to create links automatically to web pages, phone numbers, and the slide-to-unlock screen function. The key to this case is that the Supreme Court case is about design patents, not utility patents. The patents about how it looks, how it... uh, You know, how they organize the icons, as we were talking about earlier. But what is the difference between design versus utility? Well, uh, here on the line to join us um, to talk about this is Dr. Tim Holbrook, who is a professor of law at Emory University School of Law and one of the nation's leading patent law experts. He's, He's going to walk us through the subject and what problems it might be creating for future litigation. Dr. Tim Holbrook, thank you so much for being with us. 
Thanks for having me. What an interesting uh, subject. We we hear a lot about the lawsuits between Samsung and Apple. I mean, those have been a big deal. And then on top of it, some of the utility issues of Samsung phones catching on fire and the impact that that has been having on their bottom line. Why does it? Well, first of all, I guess talk about the Supreme Court decision um, or what they what they were supposed to talk about and rule on on October 11th. What is that all about? So what this is about is how much money should Apple get from Samsung? So it is, it is undisputed that Samsung's phones infringed Apple's design patents. Uh, and so what is now pending at the Supreme Court is whether the standard that the lower courts use is correct. The statute says that someone who infringes a design patent has to give over the extent of their total profit mm. on the article of manufacture. And so what the lower courts did said, well, Samsung infringed the way the iPhone looks, so Samsung has to pay the lost profits it made on all of those infringing phones. Mm. Which is, I mean, which is interesting because the phone isn't made up just because of its design. It's made up of all of its other, you know, utility patents that are behind it. Right. The way the phone looks doesn't impact the fact that you can send email from it or Mm -hmm. take a phone call on it or play games, right? And so it seems a little odd that Samsung would lose all the value of those sales simply because it infringes on the design patents covering the the aesthetic appearance of the phone. Is this this now where maybe the complexity of products are – they're becoming so complex that maybe the laws, whether it's a design – a uh, patent or a functional utility pa- um, patent, it's no longer keeping up with the times. I think that's absolutely the case, that more and more you have very complex technologies in consumer devices. Uh, the, the rule of thumb for an iPhone is that there's probably about 200,000 patents that cover it. Wow. Uh, and so right, and we're, we're dealing with statutes that were drafted in a much earlier age when typically your patents corresponded to a single product for the most part. Mm. And that's no longer the case, particularly for design patents, where it talks about forfeiting this profit for the article of manufacture. You know, for wallpaper, maybe that makes sense, you know, why you want the wallpapers and right. how it looks. But for something like a phone or a car, it, it begins to break down uh, in terms of common sense, in terms of adequately compensating the patent owner. Right. No. That's now. I mean, the crazy thing to me is the Supreme Court is thinking about this. They How are, did it go that far? So the Supreme Court hasn't talked about design patents in over a century, and so <laughs> what happened is basically the lower court, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Federal Circuit, which, which is a, a patent expert court, had concluded that the statute says what it says. It says you lose the profits on the article of manufacture. Um, and they felt sort of constrained by the statute and by what other cases had said. The Supreme Court isn't bound by any of those earlier decisions. They're, they're bound by what a statute says, but here what the fight is going to be, and it gets very legalistic, as lawyers will do, as to, well, what does article of manufacture in the statute actually mean? Does that mean the entire product? Or are you allowed to slice and dice something up like the phone and say, well, here the article of manufacture isn't the entire phone. Maybe it's just the screen. Hmm. Right? And so that's, that'll be the lever they use to play with the idea of, of sort of trying to apportion the value of the phone in some way. 
Man. Um, you titled the article that you wrote in the conversation, um, do, you, do you buy a smartphone for its curves? Do you buy a car for its cup holders? I mean, are we really buying it for the design per se, or are we buying it for all of its abilities and technologies behind it? I think that's a hard question to answer in the modern era more and more because clearly you know, we want our, our, our smartphones to do things like check email and surf the web. Um, but the reality is the, the part of the attraction of the iPhone is its design, its simplicity, and its user-friendliness, right? Right. So, right I, in contrast, you know, like a, a cup holder in a car, right? You don't buy a car for the cup holder. But in the modern era with a lot of technologies – the design and utilitarian aspects are, in my mind, merging in the eyes of the consuming public. Think about, um, you know, Fitbits, right? It's actually almost a style uh, symbol to have one on your wrist, even though it has important functional dynamics. And so I think style and aesthetic is, is merging in some sense with utility in terms of what consumers want. Hmm. It makes it a tougher question. Does, do there need to be more laws made? Do, do we need to like adjust the laws, or is that what will happen through these decisions with the higher courts? I think that that's what will happen through the Supreme Court and other court decisions. I think the danger of, of trying to go in uh, for Congress to, to legislate in this area is Congress then has to guess what's gonna, going to happen in terms of innovation, in terms of design. And so here the courts, I think, are, are better equipped to be able to take the cases as they come up and try and do the line drawing in a way that is actually sensitive to the particular market, the particular product. For Congress to try and anticipate that, that that's very difficult for them to do. Mm. It's, it's interesting to me because, like, in, pharmacy, in pharmaceuticals, one company will go um, – it seems like they'll create a, a you know the the next super drug. Um, they'll eventually have all the rights, the patents, all of the all of the rights to that. But eventually, doesn't it? Uh, isn't aren't others allowed to to uh, to take their learnings and 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 take it to another level? I mean, isn't it eventually kind of open sharing of of resources eventually after so much time? That's correct. Both design patents and utility patents um, eventually expire. So the owner of the patent is only given a finite period of time in which they can keep other people Hmm. from practicing their claim dimension, right? So so eventually this design patent will expire. Eventually pharmaceutical patents expire, which is why then generics can enter the market. Uh, And so, yes, and so in some ways it cuts both ways, right? In some ways you think, well, this this is going to the public at some point, and the public is supposed to be the ultimate beneficiary of these patents. But because it is time-limited, during that period of time, the value of that innovation or design uh, is tied to that small period of time. Mm. We think the patent owners may want to you know, extract the value they can during that small window. And that's when they're making the hay. That's when they make right. the money. Exactly. And exactly. so that's, I guess, where a $400 uh, million dollar lawsuit comes out. Um, it's funny. I, I don't see um, I don't see Apple trying to follow or steal the patents of the burning uh, notebook seven. <laughs> no, that I don't didn't think want that one. Did they? Up to, to, to product liability for that one, though, not so much. But it really is a lot of money, and, and plus just the flow that it throws out there, and the bad press, the bad media that come because of these decisions. Um, I guess going down the road, when you look at an Apple, for example, too, they are such a strong design firm. 
I mean, I guess this is them just exercising their right to something that people don't pay as much attention to. Absolutely the case. And the reality has been design patents had not been viewed as important, at least in terms of litigation in the past. Um, they've always they've been around for a really long time, but you know, typically we, we thought about design patents in the area of, say, furniture design mm-hmm. or shoes. And a lot of these were rarely litigated. Maybe there were a lot of licensing deals that took place, so they just didn't come into court. Yeah. Uh, but with this decision, at least the lower court's decision, it really makes design patents look far more attractive to people as a way of protecting their products and then having a, a really powerful remedy of, of getting you know, the infringer's profits behind it. If the Supreme Court does what I think it's going to do and sort of change the rules so that you have to figure out, well, how much of the infringing good uh, is, re- is relevant to that patent, then it'll make them less attractive. But, but clearly the Apple v. Samsung litigation has brought design patents to the fore in the legal consciousness and I think in the public consciousness in a way that just wasn't present mm. years ago. And do we? it doesn't seem like we see this in other industries, though, like automobile manufacturing, is it? I mean, it seems like they, they are borrowing from each other's ideas. They're just creating their own patent. Is that what they're doing? Well, they, whether they patent them or not, or whether they license them or not, the, the one thing about design patents is that it, you can't, it can only be for the ornamental, it can't be for the functional. And so okay, that right. line drawing can be tough when you're in, mm. say, a, a, the space of, of automobile design, where clearly there's ornamental aspects to it, but maybe the shape is dictated by aerodynamics. Right. Or, right. And so that line drawing becomes a little bit tough. Hmm. Holy cow, what an interesting field you are in. Where do you see this going in the future with the case between Apple and Samsung? And where do you think it's going to go in general uh, about, you know, future of design patents? So I think this will definitely have to go back to the lower courts. I have no doubt in my mind that the Supreme Court will reject what happened below. They will say you don't get all of the lost profits or all of the profits from the phones. Um, so they will give some interpretation of what this term article of manufacture means. So it'll have to go back to the lower courts for the courts to figure out, well, what is the article of manufacture? And then the second step of now that we know what counts as the part of the phone, how much of the profits can we attribute to that slice? Mm. Right? So that's going to have to go back. Uh, in terms of the impact on design patents, I mean, this will be a hugely important and influential decision. It will impact the attractiveness of design patents uh, to uh, companies in the future. It also could have some impact in the utility patent dynamic because these same concerns arise. The statute is different, but again, you know, even for the examples you gave, of sort of like you know, slide to unlock. Yeah. So I infringe that patent. Well, how much uh, value to the phone is because of that feature, right? And so these ideas of how you apportion the value of the invention relative to the product are everywhere. And so I think this decision could have a pretty powerful impact even in utility patent doctrine as well. No, I like that. That's great. Well, we appreciate it. This is an interesting insight, and uh, it takes it takes takes somebody in the know to help us sort through that. Dr. Timothy Holbrook, thank you again, and uh, keep up your great work there at Emory University School of Law. Appreciate it. Boy, it's, uh, it's times they are a-changing. Because I love my phone, and yet there's many times when I look at the um, Samsung phones, I'm thinking, they're so much bigger and, wow, brighter. They're 
They seem more, you know, like they're never going to ever break, more malleable. I don't know. In the end, I'm always looking at the design, too. I like it. I also like the functionality. Where do you go with this? Future, folks. We'll take a break. Come back. When we come back, we'll do a little Coach's Corner. And uh, as we come back, we'll be talking about you and what what it takes to create a change in you. It's funny. These cell phone companies are constantly innovating to make it better for you. How about you? Are you still innovating? Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. I'm ready to go in, Coach. Just give me a chance. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Play ball! Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, we think about these companies like Apple and Samsung every day innovating. Hundred, What did he say? 200,000 patents that go into a cell phone? Are you crazy? That is a lot of learning, a lot of development. And then I sit and I look at uh, just as a human being, how much are you doing every day to improve your your life, your process, your systems? Well, I bought a cell phone. Well, great. That's maybe not the only thing you need to be doing. There might be more to life than just buying your change. Maybe we need to get better and better at becoming Somebody who innovates, who changes, who redesigns like these companies do. Boy, if we could just put a patent on it and find out the patent to success. And if you look at it, some people just are amazing at doing certain things. If you got somebody in your life that when it comes to discipline, they are the most disciplined human you've ever met. They just do what they're supposed to do. They don't care if it's fun or easy or whatever. They're going to do it. Uh, do you have somebody in your life that um, that will actually set a New Year's resolution and make it work? Or when they say they're going to get healthy, they actually do, and they stay healthy. Do you know these people? What is their deal? How can they do that when the rest of us seem to struggle so much? It's innovation. It's change. And I wanted to run through for you some principles that um, I use when I coach people to create lasting change in their lives. Because, again, it's not easy. I don't want to pretend like it is. It's, it's, it's not always fun, and it's not always um, – how do you put it? It's not always the thing that you want to do. It's not the, the number one thing you might want to do today, but it is obviously – important somewhere along the line. So here's some ideas. Number one thing that um, I suggest when we're trying to create real change in our lives, the change I would suggest we're working on is change that is based in principle versus practice. So uh, I'm about to undertake a, a new health regimen, and I'm not sure if I'm interested and if I like the idea, but apparently it's happening. Now, I've talked to a bunch of people about it. I've studied everything about the nutrition side of this uh, of diet approach I'm going to be doing. I've studied everything on the physical side. In fact, uh, I almost felt like I worked out yesterday because I watched a workout video. I actually didn't work out, but I watched one. So it's almost like working out, right? In the end, though, I found that um, I 
I know the principles. The principles are fairly basic. There's a million ways to do it, but um, I've got to I've got to moderate my intake, right? Maximize my exercise, and if I want, and and grow my muscle groups. That's pretty much the rule. Or I can just go do someone's diet. Now, I I differentiate a principle from a practice. The principle of moderation is different than the practice of a diet. Pick one. The principle is going to, I believe, over time, create the good results. The practice is just one way of doing that. But we we have to be super uh, attentive to the principles of our lives. So um, I like to instead teach the principle that governs what I'm trying to do so that I can understand the principle because I can implement a principle 50 different ways. I can take the principle of moderation and implement it through 50 different methods of diets, right? There's hundreds of diets, but there's only one principle of moderation. And I like to understand the principle behind it. I also like to understand the fact that there's a choice involved here. And if I'm going to choose to do something, I suggest um, we try to create more of a balanced, healthy approach to life. So one of the things I've created um, in my own uh, program is I create this program called Life Changer, My Life Changer, which is based in principles. And uh, for example, I believe I need to be healthy physically, socially, emotionally, spiritually, financially, and intellectually. And I learned this because as a relationship coach, I might have the social down, but the physical, I'm out of shape. The intellectual, I've quit studying if I, when I was no longer going to school. So how do I keep my intellectual up instead of just doing my one thing I'm really good at, maybe the social or the emotional? How do I still manage my finances? How come financial planners are divorcing? How come, you know, divorce attorneys are struggling emotionally with depression and anxiety? Because we're whole beings, and whole beings demand that if we're going to work and try to create health in our lives, then we really need to make sure we're working on all of those areas at a time. We also could focus on and spend more time on what works versus what doesn't work. Meaning, let's go start to find what works for me as um, a way of living the principle of moderation. I have uh, been tutored on a diet that was coming from my family members, and I went and studied the diet. I have family members, relatives that are the most disciplined humans you've ever met. I'm not so disciplined. So the idea that I can only eat certain things so many times a day, harder, it's harder for me. So I have to find a way that works for me to live that lesson, that principle. And I can find it where in my past, I can find it today, and I could think about what it would look like in the future if I were doing it. For example, I know I can pretty much stick to a diet or a plan if I can just carry the food with me everywhere I go. If I know that I was going to have the meal that I'm supposed to eat at 9 o'clock in the morning handed to me, at 8.50, I'm pretty sure I would eat that meal at 9 o'clock. If I have to go find the meal at 11 because I'm starving, we're going to get into trouble. It will probably involve french fries and two all beef patties, special sauce, lettuce, cheese, stuff like that. I need 
uh, to find out how it works for me. And I can find out how it works for me by going to my past. Where did I used to manage my moderation, that principle, better? Where could I handle it better? I might notice that my new schedule today, my life today, and my schedule today is impacting me, my ability to live that principle. Where do I live it today? Or yesterday, for example. How did I live principle of moderation yesterday when I was home and around the house all day? Could grab any food I wanted. There's principles there. So we stick to the principle. We recognize the fact that this is a choice. I try to create a whole approach that gets to my physical, social, emotional, spiritual, financial, intellectual areas of my life. I've got to have goals that kind of reach all of these areas. And I need to learn from what worked in the past, what works today, and what would work in the future. And tie those to the principles. Then I just need to ask one question and do it consistently. What's the most important thing I can do today to live moderation? And come up with a new idea and try to live that today. What's the most important thing I could do today to be more financially healthy and safe and sound? What's the most important thing I could do today emotionally to be stronger? Meditate. There's always an answer. And the funny thing is, and this is the final principle, you know what you need to do. It's in your head. Humans know how to improve themselves. You don't need coaches. You already know inside of you one thing you need to do financially to be better. You already know what you need to do socially and emotionally to have a better life today. You already know these things. We just have to put it in front of us, and consistently be touching on it. Anyway, little coach's corner for you. It's just an idea. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends. Some people just have a hard time either saying I'm sorry, but also forgiving the person that said they're sorry. Joining us to talk about it is Kim Giles, president and founder of Clarity Point Life Coaching, popular life coach, author, speaker, named one of the top 20 advice gurus in the country by Good Morning America. And today she's talking about the benefits of not forgiving. We... We must derive some benefit from not forgiving people because a lot of us have a hard time doing it. Oh, I think all of us have a hard yeah. time doing it, don't you think? Totally. I mean, I really believe that forgiving is one of the key lessons we're on the planet to learn. Forgiving ourselves, mm. forgiving others, forgiving life and God, you know, that things didn't go the way we – I just think forgiveness is a key yeah. piece and it's not easy. No. And it must – we we it, it maybe it could be easier, but maybe we have something that maybe it's the fear you always talk about. There's something going on that that we think no no I can't forgive because he'll just do it again. Right? He'll do it again. He'll hurt me again. Well, that's one of what we think the benefits are from not forgiving people. Yeah. Because the reason we're struggling with it is that there are benefits to yeah. staying mad. Yes. And that's one of them is we feel like we have to stay mad in order to protect ourselves. Right. right? Being mad makes it safer for you. You're less likely to be hurt. Hurt by that person again. When you're mad. But that just kind of shows me we don't truly – 
understand forgiveness the right way. The way we're looking at it, we think it means pardoning completely. Right. You know, that this thing they did isn't wrong if I forgive them. Yeah. And that's we're going to we're going to talk today about what forgiveness really is. Pardoning the wrong is not what we're talking about. No. What they did is wrong. We're going to keep that stand that it's wrong. They, they say sometimes you forgive and forget. So you don't want to forgive because you don't want to forget what happened. I but I do want to forget. Go. But if I forget it, then they will hurt me again and I won't learn the lesson. Okay. Mm. So that's okay. one benefit. Teach us. Yeah. And, and I want everybody listening. We've all got someone that yeah. we're struggling right. to not be mad at, right? Right. So really think about this. Does holding on to the the offense and the casting of this person as the bad one, because that's really what we, we've done. We've decided they're the bad one. We're the good one. Does it give you this sense of righteousness that you're the good guy mm. and the more you keep that stand that they're the bad guy the better your self-esteem feels because often i think that's one of the big benefits to staying here because it keeps us as the righteous one. Oh, yes i'm the good guy yeah um now a big question i want you to ask yourself is it earning you any sympathy, love, attention, or validation from people when you tell your story about how awful this person was to you and they all take your side? Are you getting this just amount of validation and and love Mm. from your victim story about this other person? Yeah. And I think there's a lot of that that goes on with all of us. Okay, another one, does being this sad, poor, hurt, angry victim excuse some level of bad behavior on your part mm-hmm. because you're just so wounded and so broken by this person that they, you can't expect me to behave better than this? Yeah, this is – this. you know, and I, I wouldn't even be this way if, if it wasn't they for them. hadn't done that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's oh, we've so both true. worked with people like that oh, who get hard. stuck there. And they so they'd rather have – the story than the healthy. And and rather they'd rather hold on to that story than be happy. Yeah. Right. Right? Because you can't be happy there. But you're you really not and you're can't. not happy. yeah, you're not happy with the story, but they 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 use the story, they've got the story. If they got rid of the story, they'd have to kind of look at themselves. So we don't want to do that. Right. And we've talked a lot before when I've been on your show about the fear that I'm not good enough mm-hmm. that haunts all of us. It's one of our core fears we all have. Yeah. We're afraid we're not good enough. And whenever we can focus on the bad in other people and keep casting that blame that they're the bad guy, it, it saves us from having to look at our own mm. bad so we may subconsciously be really choosing to not forgive because these benefits are so great. <laughs> and 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 it keeps you stuck. Absolutely. Oh, but see they really are messed up though. The people what, that the, hurt us? Yeah. Oh. So I'm yeah. I'm really trying to help them. <laughs> By keep trying to get them to see yeah. how bad they are. So I had this visual the other day, um, and I'm gonna start using this with my clients where I'm gonna draw a jail on a piece of paper. And I'm going to have these cells. And I want you to think of who are the people in your life that deserve to be in that cell. And let's put them in there, you know. But if you want to stay in this place of condemnation and judging and and condemning these people, Mm -hmm. then you have to stay in the jail too as the warden. Yeah. And the the reality is none of you can leave. As long as you insist on casting them as Uh. the bad guy and keeping them in jail, you have to stay in jail with them. Yeah. Guarding 
the jail. So really, you're you're condemning yourself to the same exact misery mm. that you're condemning them. So true. And even and especially because when somebody has hurt you like that, many times you want to be away from them. But if you keep them in the jail, you're with oh, them. You're living with them all forever. day, every day. They're in your head. Yeah. Every time you think about this, you are in the jail with them. Oh, that's a great <laughs> metaphor. So we've got to be honest with ourselves and yeah. let go of the story that we've created about this person and what they did to you and how they're bad and you're good. We got to get rid of that whole story if you ever want to heal mm. and, and get your own life and happiness and healthy relationships back. No, it's isn't that – that is kind of the crux of if we can get the thought right – then it seems like forgiveness will flow. Absolutely. And, you know, if you see life as a classroom and you can really trust the universe that it knows what it's doing, mm. this person that wronged you was in your life for a reason to serve your education. They yeah. are serving as a teacher here. And whatever they did to you is making you grow. It's making you become stronger and wiser and more loving. Or it could be if you saw it as a lesson and decided to use it this way. Yeah. Right. Uh, That's huge. So, so if we can trust the universe, it knows what it's doing. And yeah, this interesting person showed up and hurt you or offended you. Well, what positive could be created from you having that experience? Hmm. Because as soon as you can start to see the ways that that experience could make you better, you'll start to find forgiveness becomes so easy. Well, because cl- the classroom paradigm is it's a longer term model, right? It's you're here to learn and the learning will continue and that it will eventually be beneficial to you someday Absolutely. versus the non-classroom is, you know, you've just been hurt and there's no – there's kind of no tomorrow. So Well, there's no benefit to it. Get it today. You got to get your benefit loss. right now. Right. Right. Oh. So I, I did have a client years ago who had a really difficult mother who hurt her through her whole life mm. and the anger and, and hurt that she carried – over that was just drowning her. Oh yeah. And so I remember the day that we sat down and said, "Let's let's see if we can name ten positives that having that mother has created in your life." And you know she could do it. She could mm. come up with things like, you know, it made me own my own sense of self worth and not try to get it from other people. And at a really deep level, because your mom is supposed to be your your source of unconditional right. love, and you don't have it there, you have to dig deep to find it in yourself. And it's made her independent. It, it's made her work for things on her own. Right. I mean, there were all kinds of blessings. Huge. And as soon as she can get into a space of almost gratitude that God in the universe sent her this mother for a reason to help her become the woman she is today, uh, forgiveness. Boom. Yeah, it's so much easier. So, folks, we got to change cool. how we're seeing forgiveness and not just try to Pardon the guilty because yeah. that'll never work. Well, and and you'll know because you'll have peace or you won't. I mean, this yeah. will provo- this will eventually produce peace and progress or kind of stagnation. So, how do you want to live? It's a great question. How do you want to live? Kim Giles is her name. Go to the website um, claritypointcoaching.com. You're starting a new program with teens. Amazing coaching boot camp for teens. And if you know a teen that's struggling or is is really high risk, 
please visit our website and look into our coaching boot camps for teens. Sweet. Coaching boot camps for teens. Go to claritypointcoaching.com and get more information about Kim and all of those camps. Thank you, Kim. Stick with us, folks. We'll take a break. Stick with us. 